There's nothing more important than the Word of God, but it's only when the Word of God is mixed with the Spirit and when the Word of God is received with faith. And so let's ask the Lord to bless. Uh, His Word, I guess, is already blessed, but let's ask Him to help us to open up our hearts and to hear what the Lord would try to say to us tonight. Let's take some time right now to ask Him to come and be with us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. We know that You are here, that You are always here. But we ask especially right now that You would turn Your attention to this place and help us to open up our hearts to receive something from You tonight. Let Your Word be anointed as it goes to our hearts to teach us, to give us a teachable spirit, a humble attitude as we approach Your sacred Word. Hallelujah. Let Your blessings be upon this service in a very real and definite way. And we thank You for it. Thank You, Jesus, for the confidence I have in You. Thank You, Lord, for the witness of the Spirit that I can feel even now. Praise Your name, Jesus. Praise Your name. We exalt You. We bless Your holy name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. Would you turn with me to our foundation text? The book of Hebrews, we're going to look at it again. The book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and verse 15. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And we're talking about holiness tonight. We'll be dealing with some principles and some application, and next Wednesday night we'll be wrapping it up with some more principles and application. But this verse tells us that holiness is essential in our Christian walk. That even though we may have started in the grace of God, it's possible to fail of the grace of God. Not that God's grace would fail, but that we could fail to let God's grace work in our lives. And so it is our responsibility and our privilege to follow the path of holiness. Amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Last time we gave a twofold definition of holiness from the Scripture. And that is, do you recall, first of all, holiness means separation. Separation from sin and from the world. And then second, holiness means Dedication. Dedication to God. And that is really holiness summarized. Separation from and dedication to. We talked about that true holiness was both in the flesh and in the spirit. It involves the outward man and the inward man. And much of the misunderstanding of holiness in our day is an emphasis on just one or the other. Saying, only the inward man matters. If my motive is right, it doesn't matter what I do or look like on the outside. Or the other false doctrine would be that as long as I conform to certain rules and regulations, as long as I appear holy in the sight of men, then therefore I must have true holiness and true spirituality. And both of those views are erroneous and will lead to spiritual destruction in the end. But if we are going to be holy in God's sight, we must work towards perfection in both the inward and the outward man. It's a process of perfection, a process of growing. None of us have arrived, but yet we must be in the process. If we're not striving, 
if we're not seeking after perfection, if we're not consciously trying to live the life of holiness, then there's something wrong with our Christian experience. Now, tonight I want to talk about how can we live a holy life. I think there are three fundamental uh, bases of holiness. That is, three uh, fundamental sources or ways in which we can receive holiness in our life. And I want to talk about that for a few moments before we go into some practical areas. The first source or basis of holiness is faith. Faith in the Word of God. You see, if you have genuine faith in God's words, then you are going to obey His words. You say, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody likes to say that. All uh, Christian groups believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But can you believe on a man... Or can you believe in God and not believe His Word? If you believe me, you have to believe my words. And so it is with God. If you believe Him, belief is simply taking God at His words. You can't separate Him from His Word. And to believe His Word means you will obey His Word. And we talked about that several weeks ago. We taught on faith. If you'll recall, uh, it's impossible to be a disobedient believer. If you truly believe the Scripture when it teaches us that sin separates us from God. That if you live in sin, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you really believe that, what are you going to do? You're going to stop sinning. You're going to ask God to help you stop. If you really have faith, it's going to motivate you to obedience. And so, the true life of holiness. How do you become holy? You don't become holy in your own works. You cannot manufacture holiness. You cannot take a sinner and make him holy. You cannot strive and earn holiness in your own life. Now, it is true that you must open up your heart to the, to the Word of God, to the Spirit of God, and we're going to be talking about that some. But I want to establish from the outset that we are not saved by human works. We do not become holy by human efforts. We become holy by putting our faith in God and letting Him do the miraculous work in our lives. We cannot forgive ourselves of sin. Only God can do that. We cannot become holy in ourselves, only God can impart to us the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm not concerned when visitors come, people that don't have the Holy Ghost, they may come not properly dressed, not conquering the various habits of sin in their lives. That doesn't disturb me in the sense of immediately trying to pound into them a change that they should make. My number one concern is to preach them the gospel of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ to lead them to the altar of repentance, to lead them to water baptism, to uh, lead them to receiving the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, they cannot really live the life of holiness. It's no use trying to argue with them or persuade them or, or threaten them or whatever because without the Holy Spirit, it's impossible. That's why so many denominations are in trouble, and that is their people realize the need to repent, realize the need to live a godly life, and they try, but they fail. And so they go into a cycle of repentance and trying to do good and failing miserably. Then trying to repent, then failing miserably. And finally, either some of them give up and say, uh, it's good in theory, but it doesn't work. Or they settle for the idea, well, you're a sinning Christian. You just have to sin a little bit every day. Once saved, always saved. Or God just overlooks my sin. God just thought I'm not going to cover it. I just keep on sinning. But true Christian life is not that. True Christian life is victorious. The power of the Holy Spirit. But you must have the Holy Spirit. And then once you receive the Spirit, not only do you have the power, but you've got supernatural guidance and illumination of the Scripture. The carnal mind does not understand the things of God. 
what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us. But when the Holy Spirit comes in your life, John 14, the Spirit is given to lead us and guide us into all truth. The Spirit is given as our teacher. And through the illumination of the Spirit, then the true way of holiness becomes more clear to us. And so, really, the way to live a holy life, first of all, you must have faith in the Word of God. Don't try to rely on your human efforts. You must rely on God. Even after you receive the Holy Ghost, you're not going to be successful just in, on your own. The only way you're going to be successful is in daily dependence upon God, putting your faith and trust and commitment in Him. Ephesians 2, 8 tells us, well, let's read it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This explains our salvation. Hebrews, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our salvation is a free gift of God. That's what grace means. And you receive that free gift not by earning it, not by deserving it, not by paying for it, but by having faith. But salvation is not just the initial moment of conversion. Salvation is the whole process from the beginning until we reach heaven. And just as you didn't begin in works, just as you didn't earn the Holy Ghost, so you cannot finish by works. You cannot live a holy life just by human actions. It's got to be the grace of God working in you. And the only way you can receive and continue to have the grace of God working in your life is to continue to have faith in God. But notice verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So you're saved by faith. You live by faith. Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. But yet that faith will do what? It will produce in you good works. Amen. Now, the second foundation or the second source, the second basis of holiness in our lives is love. Love for the Word of God. John chapter 14 and verse 15. Listen to what Jesus Christ had to say. John 14 and 15, If ye love me, Keep my commandments. There's the true test of love. A lot of people say they love God. It's easy to say you love God. But the test of love is do you love him enough to keep his commandments? It's very similar to a husband and wife relationship or even a parent and son relationship. And both of these analogies are used in Scripture. Christ in the church is compared to a bridegroom and bride and father and son. But here's the point. If you truly love your spouse, aren't you going to seek to please them? You're not doing it because you have to, but you do it because you want to. You want to know what they like. You, know, if you want to know uh, if, if they think you look good, if they like this particular dress that you're wearing, if they like this uh, suit that you're wearing, if they like the way you comb your hair, if they like the food that you prepare. It's not because you have to. It's not a matter of law or regulation. But it's a matter of desiring to know what would please that loved one. Isn't that the way it is? And so tr true love will motivate you to pay attention to God's desires, to God's wishes, to God's instructions. Love will motivate us to obey the Word of God. Let me tell you this. Love is a far stronger motive than law. Now, legalism is... An incorrect approach to holiness. Legalism simply means living for God by rules. 
Legalism means basing your salvation on good works. You say, I live up to all the rules, therefore I'm saved. That was the error of the Jews at the time of Christ, the Pharisees. And Jesus said, you try to do all these things, but really your heart is not right. Your heart is far from me, and that's what legalism produces. It produces people that want to be technically accurate according to certain rules, but they neglect the things of the Spirit. They're not motivated out of love. And we don't advocate around here just living for God by rules. Now, it's true, God does has, have command. There are guidelines for Christian behavior. But where do these come from? These do not come by man. They come from the teaching of God's Word. And all holiness teaching is based on the Word of God. Some of it is specifically spelled out in Scripture. Some of it, you have to apply the principles of Scripture. For example, the Bible teaches against drunkenness. It says it's a sin. But the Bible doesn't mention the modern drugs such as cocaine and marijuana, but we can still preach against those because the Bible principle is not just to say that grape wine is off limits. The Bible principle is intoxication, putting your mind under the control of a foreign power. That's wrong. And so whatever means you use, whether you use ancient means or modern means that the Bible did not uh, mention, it still violates the biblical principle. But what I'm saying is all of our holiness teachings come from Scripture either a statement in Scripture or a principle in Scripture that we apply to modern life. We don't teach holiness just out of man's rules. If something that I teach on these nights you don't agree with, check it out with the Word of God. Pray about it. Ask God to illuminate your heart. And if it's strictly a man-made idea that's not the Word of God, that doesn't have a principle of Scripture to back it up, then ignore it. But if it's a principle of the Word of God, then it's not my teaching. It's not a denomination's teaching. It's not a church's teaching but it's something that we must obey as the Word of God. And so if you really love God, you will not be motivated just to serve God out of fear. See, legalism, that is, getting a whole list of rules, is motivated by fear. You're, you're afraid. And fear can help you for a while. You know, fear can motivate you to come to the altar, perhaps. Fear will motivate you to uh, be safe for a while, to, to stay on the safe side for a while. But eventually, fear is inadequate to enable you to live for God. There will come a crisis. There will come a situation uh, there will, where fear won't be enough to sustain you. And only your overriding love for God will keep you. There will come a time of gray area where there will be a, a place where there's nobody else but you. And you have to make an ethical decision. Uh, there may be some uh, thing that you struggle with that maybe the preacher has never mentioned specifically. And if you don't have a deeper motive, you'll go into an area where your rules don't apply and you'll do the sinful thing or the unholy thing and you'll feel no guilt. You'll have no conscience because it's not really based on love. It's not really based on understanding the Christian principle, but it's just based on the rules. You see, following the rules, it leads you to a mentality of the loopholes. If you preach against this form of jewelry, somebody will wear another form that's not preached on. If you preach against this form of makeup, somebody will wear another form that not, hadn't been mentioned. Uh, if you preach against uh, movies, somebody will uh, show the same thing on their video thing at home. In other words, if you're going by legalism, there will never be enough rules to make you holy. You'll always find a loophole. But if you really love God, you'll say, wait a minute, what's the whole point? And that will cause you to analyze your whole life. If I were to give you a, a, a diagram, so to speak, let's say there's a line here. On one side is holiness. On the other side is sin. And the line that separates the two is the law. The law is good. It's necessary to define, to tell you what's right and wrong. 
But the people that live right on the line, what they're saying is, what do I have to do to be saved? You know, preacher, tell me what I have to do to be saved or to sing in the choir or whatever. I'll do what I have to. Living for God by minimum requirements. But that's dangerous because what happens, sometimes there comes a gray area. The line is not always so clear. There, are, there aren't enough rules to cover the new situations that you crop up. And if you're just living by legalism, you are going to allow yourself to step over sooner or later. It may be in some minute area, and before you know it, you have lost your holiness. Like Samson, he played around with that thing that was sacred and didn't realize when he had lost his power with God till it was too late. You see, you're toeing the line between sin and the world if you try to live a legalistic life. But, now, a lot of people reject legalism. They say, we don't live for God by rules, but what is their answer? Throw away the rules. There's no law. Everybody does what's right in his own eyes. But what happened in Judges when Israel did that? They had no king. They had no supreme law. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Was that a utopia? Was that a paradise? To the contrary, the book of Judges portrays uh, how terrible it really was with all kinds of sin and crime and civil war and all kinds of horrible uh, sins went unchecked because there was no guidance. And that's where perhaps, and I don't mean to be judgmental, but let me just throw this out. Perhaps that's where most of Christianity, that's where the charismatic movement perhaps, is going in the direction of. They want the blessings. They want the love. They want the Holy Ghost. But we don't want any guidelines. We don't want to be legalistic, they say. You Pentecostals, you're legalistic. You have a lot of rules. But let me say this. The proper alternative to legalism is not everybody do your own thing. The proper alternative to legalism is not throw away all guidelines to ethical conduct. Ignore the plain teaching of Scripture. Don't try to worry about applying principles to modern society. You know what the proper alternative to legalism is? Love. In other words, I'm not living for God because there are 10 million rules. I'm living for God because the law has been placed in my heart. I'm not living by tables of stone. I'm not living by the written code, but I am living by the Spirit in my life. As you hear people, uh, Pentecostal people will say, I can drink all I want to drink. I can smoke all I want to smoke because I don't want to anymore. It's been, I've been changed from within. That's what I'm talking about. Living for God out of love. And love will be tougher on you than all the laws in the world will be. Because if you love, that will motivate you to go far beyond the call of duty. What if you had a sick child, that you had a hired babysitter taking care of it, or you had the mother taking care of it? Who do you think would do a more conscientious job? Who would agonize more? Who would be more concerned? Who would stay up more? Who would sacrifice more? The person is doing it because of a job, because of duty, or the person is doing it out of love? Love is far more demanding than law. Do uh, husband and wife, do they, do they stay faithful to each other because of the law? Thou shalt not commit adultery. That may, you know, that may keep someone from straying in a moment of temptation. But really, why am I faithful to my wife? Is it just because I'm afraid of getting caught and punished? Or is it because I love? Which is going to be a stronger motivator? The person is just afraid of being caught. He may not stray in an observable fashion, but in his mind he may be unfaithful. He may uh, be willing to think thoughts that he shouldn't think, which Jesus says that can become sin in and of itself. Uh, he can become, become flirtatious. He can be unfaithful in all kinds of little ways in the spirits. 
but the person that's full of love for his spouse, those thoughts don't even uh, uh, stay in his mind, or they, those thoughts don't, he doesn't even entertain them. Satan could bring those to him, but it's never a serious consideration. Not because he's afraid of getting caught, not because he's afraid of violating the law, but because the superior love for his spouse automatically drives away any competing pressures. And so it is with God. If you're going to live for God, it's not going to be always because you're afraid of breaking a rule. You're afraid the pastor's going to see you. You're afraid somebody else is going to see you. You're afraid you're going to violate uh, the greed principles of the church. But it's because you love God that your love for God drives out a desire for evil. And so, uh, saying, I'm not a legalist, that shouldn't lead you to, to uh, being more loose in your living. That should lead you to greater holiness. Instead of saying, what do I have to do to be saved? What are the minimum requirements? What you should be asking is, what can I do to draw closer to God? And you see, that will be more demanding on you than law. Instead of towing the line, you're going to say, how close... How can I get as close to God as possible? And then it doesn't become just a matter of, will this send me to hell? You know, some people want to know, can you prove if I watch this one TV program, I'm going to hell? But you know what their attitude is? Is what do I have to do to be saved? What can I get by with? Where's the loophole? What's the minimum requirement? But what I could say is, wait a minute. Before we even talk about the moral aspects, which we will talk about the moral aspects of TV. We'll mention that tonight. But even before that, if I could show you that it's not God's will, if I could show you that it could be a hindrance, if I could show you that it would be a detriment to your spirituality, if I could show you that by avoiding it you could draw closer to God, wouldn't that solve the matter right there? It's not always a question of can I get by with it. It's not always a question of can you prove to me that I can't do it. The question is, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus want me to do? How can I please God the most? And that will cause you to be much more disciplined on yourself. See, I can't prove that if you don't fast once a week, you're not going to be saved. Of course not. But that's not the point. The point is, how can I get closer to God? I can't prove to you that if you don't uh, win five souls a year, you're going to hell. That's not the point. The point is, what can I do for God? How can I be more like Him? How can I get closer to get Him? How can I be truly spiritual? And your love will cause you to be more holy than any other force would ever do. Amen. Praise God. And then the third basis of holiness is walking after the Spirit. And I touched on this already. That is, you don't live holy in your own efforts. You live holy only as far as you let the Holy Spirit control your life. You have to follow the Spirit daily. That's why it's important to come to church to study the Bible, to pray. Because you're not going to ever get holy on your own. The only way you're going to be holy is by the divine infusion of the Holy Spirit. And you've got to walk daily after the Spirit. Be sensitive to the leadership and the control of the Holy Spirit. Let me read a couple of verses from the book of Romans to show you what I'm talking about. Romans chapter 6 establishes that we don't have to sin. It's a lie from Satan that tells us that you have to sin a little bit every day. You say, well, you think we can live the rest of our lives without sinning? I say this, take it one day at a time. Do you have to sin today? No, you don't. Take it one day at a time. Get up this morning with the idea of I'm not going to sin today. If an evil thought comes to me, I'm going to reject it. If, a, if a, a temptation comes to me, I'm going to reject it. And I have the power to do that in the Holy Ghost. Now, if you do sin that day, don't let the devil bring the other lie to you. And the other lie is, 
well, you can't make it right. It's hopeless. You're a backslider. You're, you won't be forgiven. You've failed God too many times now. God's uh, mad at you. God's fed up with you. No, if you do sin, repent right there. Don't wait till church. But right there, say, oh, God, I'm sorry. In a moment of weakness, in a moment of foolishness, in a moment of distraction, where I wasn't dependent on the Spirit as I should. And repent. And God will wipe that clean, and then you start that day anew with the idea, I'm not going to sin. I'm going to face this day without sinning. That's what Jesus told the woman that was committed adultery. He said, go and sin no more. He didn't say, go and you're going to keep sinning every day, but I'll just keep forgiving you. Don't worry about it. He said, no, go and don't sin anymore. Now, the chances are someone in her life, she would sin. But the point is, you don't start with the attitude. If you start with the attitude, well, I got bound to sin sometime, what are you going to do when you get in a very tight situation where a lie would be very convenient? You're going to say, well, this must be one of those times. Just use up one of my times. But if you start with the attitude, look, I don't have to sin. I only sin because I choose to. The devil can't make me do anything. Despite what people say, the devil doesn't make you do anything. You let him do it to you. And sometimes it's not even the devil, really. It's probably just your own sinful uh, flesh rising up. What I'm saying, if you start with the idea, look, I don't have to sin today. You know what happens in that moment of temptation? You can say, what? wait a minute. I almost got caught in that, but wait, I'm stopping right here. I don't have to do that. Romans 6.1 What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Verse 15 What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Shall we sin because we know they're not going to take us out and stone us like they did under the law? Shall we sin because we know we got forgiveness? God forbid. Now, let me just jump over and quote 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. Rule number one for Christian life, don't sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here's rule number two. If you do sin, even though you shouldn't, even though you don't have to, if you do sin, don't give up. We've got somebody to come to help us. We've got somebody we can take our case to and say, I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't have done it. I know I didn't have to do it. But God, forgive me in your mercy. And He will. But the point is, if you live in the Spirit, you have power over the sin nature. Before the Spirit, you had no power. You, you were bound to sin. But now that you have the Spirit, you have power to overcome that nature of sin. You're like the eagle that can soar above gravity. And he just can't keep soaring forever if he's if he ignores what I'm saying by that is you can't just say well I'm a Christian now I just don't have to worry about sin anymore I got the Holy Ghost now that's what some new converts think you know I've got the Holy Ghost now no more temptation no more problems no more sin but that would be like the eagle say well I'm soaring now I've conquered gravity I think I'll just fold my wings for about an hour what's going to happen gravity's been there all the time just waiting to catch back up with him and if long as the minute he stops using his wings that minute he's going to start plunging to earth. The minute we stop walking after the Spirit, we think we've got it made, that's the minute we start come crashing because that sinful nature is just waiting for the chance. But I'm so glad one of these days we're not going to be like the eagle, we're going to be like the rocket. And that is we're going to break free from gravity, only this time it'll be permanent. And from then on we'll never have to worry about that sin lying to catch us back because we'll be freed with an immortal, glorified body 
sin is gone and we'll live eternally with the Lord in heaven. But until that time, we have always got to be on our guard. The power of the Spirit is more powerful than sin. But we've got to keep walking after the Spirit. Let's read Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak in the flesh. What, what couldn't the law do? The law could not make you holy. See, the law said, thou shalt not. But it didn't give you power to fulfill that, did it? The law tells you what you should do and what you shouldn't do. But what is the law depending on for fulfillment? Weak human flesh. The same flesh that failed all along. You see? The law was weak, not because the law is bad. The law was good. The law was God's will, God's commands, God's holy word, God's moral law. The law was good, but the only problem was it didn't give you any power. The law didn't bring a change in human life. It didn't bring a more powerful thing than the sin. But the law was depending on the same old weak sinful flesh to live holy. And weak old sinful flesh couldn't do it. So what the law couldn't do, sounds pretty bad, what the law could not do in that it was weak to the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin the flesh. In other words, God said the law cannot make man holy. The law cannot save man because man is too weak. What I'm going to do is I'm going to come in the flesh. I'm going to send my own son. and I'm going to do the job for man. And he offered up that son as an offering for sin. Now, what did Calvary purchase for mankind? It purchased freedom from the law. But how did it do that? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The whole purpose of Calvary was to give us the solution to the problem of sin that the law couldn't do. The law didn't give us a solution, so God provided Calvary. And Calvary provides that solution. But notice, how does Calvary provide the solution? We can fulfill the righteousness of the law. Every, all the righteousness that the law taught but couldn't give, we can have that. How? If we walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There is the higher power. There is what Calvary purchased for you and me. We can fulfill all righteousness if we walk after the Spirit. Now, that does not mean that it doesn't require personal effort. Now, I've said that we've got to walk after the Spirit. I've said we can't work our way to heaven. But don't get the idea that you can just relax and do nothing and you're automatically saved. You're automatically live holy. As I mentioned, some converts... And maybe, maybe many of you thought when you first got the Holy Ghost, oh, my problems are all over. It's all ended. And you found out quickly that was just the beginning. The point is, although we cannot save ourselves, we cannot work our way to heaven, we must depend on the Spirit. At the same time, we have a responsibility to use the Spirit that's given to us. We have a responsibility to let the Spirit work in our lives, to walk after the Spirit, to be sensitive to the Spirit. Some people say that any attempt to live holy is uh, of the flesh is no use, but that's not true. Any attempt to save yourself it is futile. But if you depend on the Spirit of God and walk in the Spirit, uh, that's required. That's what it's going to take. Holiness does require personal effort. That's why Hebrews 12:14 said, "Follow peace with all men and holiness." You got to follow after it. Hebrews 12:1 it says, "Let us run with patience." It said to lay aside every weight and the sin 
which is a death so easily beset us. We have to take our, the initiative to get rid of sin. And not only sin, but weights. As I was saying before, there are some things that could be hindrances. I may not be able to put my finger on it and say that's an outright sin. But I, you may be able to say, hey, this is hindering my Christian witness. This is hindering my dedication. This is a stumbling block. There could be a preoccupation with, with uh, a certain hobby or some things that I couldn't say it's sin, but I could say it's distracting me in my Christian walk. It's not good for me. I can't handle it. I need to get rid of it. I need to control it. I need to get some self-discipline in this area. And so we do have to discipline ourselves. We do have to walk. We do have to labor. Uh, James 4 tells us to resist the devil, to submit to God. I mean, we have to do that. It doesn't happen automatically. Let me give you uh, an analogy, and that is, take a farmer. Now, the farmer is totally dependent upon God. If the rain doesn't come, if the sun doesn't shine, uh, if there aren't the right nutrients in the soil, most of all, he is dependent upon the miracle of life in that seed. The most brilliant scientists of the world today cannot create life. They can clone it, but they cannot create life out of non-life. The most brilliant agricultural expert in the world is dependent upon a miracle of life in that seed, which he cannot fully explain, understand, or duplicate. So the farmer is totally dependent upon God. What if the farmer says, well, you know, since it's all up to God anyway, I think I'll sit on my front porch this year and just watch my crops grow. I'm not going to do anything. It's all up to God. It's not up to me anyway. What's going to happen? Nothing. It's like the man that walked up to the guy that had a garden and said, I remember when this used to be a real ugly bare patch of ground. You and the Lord sure have uh, done a beautiful job with this piece of ground. The gardener looked at him and said, Yeah, you should have seen it when the Lord had it by himself. The point is, not that God didn't help him, but the point is God isn't going to do it himself. He's going to wait for a human being to take the initiative. The farmer could not do what God must do. All right? Only God can give life. Only God can give the sun and the rain. The farmer cannot do what God must do. But, on the other hand, God will not do what the farmer can do. The farmer's got to plant. He's got to cultivate. He's got to plant. He's got to tend the crop. He's got to harvest the crop. And that's the same way in our spiritual life. We cannot do what God must do. We cannot forgive ourselves of our sins. We cannot purchase salvation. We can't earn the Holy Ghost. We can't make ourselves holy. We can't give ourselves the Holy Spirit. We cannot do what God must do. On the other hand, God will not do what we can do. He's not going to live for us. He's not going to uh, put one foot in front of the other and automatically make us go to church and automatically steer us away from uh, evil places. He is not going to do what we can do. We have to do the walking. And so a lot of people are praying for deliverance. Oh, God, deliver me from this and deliver me from that. And I believe there is a supernatural deliverance from habits and bonds of sin. But I'll tell you what, if you have the Holy Ghost, then you really have all the delivering power you need. And some people use the excuse, well, you know, I've got a bad temper. Well, I smoke. Well, this, well, that. And I'm just waiting for God to deliver me. And you can wait all your life for a bolt of lightning to hit you and deliver you, and you'll never be delivered. What you need to do, instead of just praying for deliverance, you need to start walking in obedience. That is, start, start trying. And you say, but I'll fail. Well, so what? If you fail, get back up. You've got to keep trying. Don't just pray for victory. Start walking in obedience. You say it's too big. Take it one step at a time. God is depending on you to do the walking. He gives you the ability. 
you still have the responsibility. See, he gives you the capacity to live holy, the ability to live holy, the potential to live holy. But you still have to do the living. He's not going to do the living for you. So holiness requires the Spirit, but it also requires our personal effort, our personal involvement. And in the end, let me say this, our holiness is not judged by how much we talk in tongues. How, if you talk in tongues, that just shows you have received the Holy Ghost at one time and you've learned how to yield to that. Holiness is not shown by just how much you shout. If you shout a lot, that just shows you've learned to yield to God. You've learned to cast your cares upon Him. You've learned to, be, to let the joy of the Lord flow through you. And those things are good and wonderful and we need that. But holiness is determined by your spiritual fruit, your daily conduct. We Pentecostals, a lot of times we're prone to judge spirituality by the gifts of the Spirit and by the physical demonstrations. So he must be really spiritual. He always gives a message in tongues. He must be really spiritual. He always shouts. Well, that may be, but it may not be. That has really no bearing. God will even use weak Christians to give messages in tongues. Maybe he does that on purpose to try to help them, to try to bless them. Sometimes God will... Uh, bless a weak Christian and they'll shout. That doesn't mean that they're weak or strong. He may be just giving them the grace that they need to survive. He's just finding a willing vessel and trying to use it. He may even use a, a weak vessel deliberately so that he gets the glory. See what I'm saying? And we need both the fruit and the gifts. We need both holy conduct and holy worship. We need it all. What I'm saying is, let's don't judge ourselves just by one dimension. We must judge our whole lives, inspect ourselves to see that if we have true Bible holiness. Now let's talk about some practical applications of the holiness message. Last time I gave you two. One of them was the fruit of the Spirit, and the other was attitudes. Let's go a little bit further tonight and talk about some of the practical applications. That is the way that we live holy in our everyday life. The next topic that I would like to look at tonight is or are our thoughts wholeness in our thought life we've already mentioned that jesus said you could sin even in your thoughts lust is sin hatred is sin thoughts are very much concerned with wholeness now, i'm not saying the devil brings a thought to you or the sinful nature brings up a thought that's not sin what you do with it determines whether it becomes sinful or not if you entertain it, if you dwell on it, if you desire it, if you harbor it in your heart, fantasize, visualize, it becomes sin. That's what's so dangerous about television. When you look at television, it's not just a thought that comes to you or the movies. It's not just a thought that comes to you and you're rejecting it, but you're sitting there deliberately visualizing it, desiring it. You know, and if all these sinful scenes are being portrayed, I mean, you're watching a soap opera that the whole theme is dealing with adultery. You say, well, I'm not participating in that. I don't approve of that. But yet you're spending an hour filling your mind with it, thinking about it, desiring it, and wanting more of it. Doesn't that become a problem of sinning in the thoughts? Why are, you know, if, if it's wrong for us to do certain things, could it be right for us to enjoy watching other people do certain things? See, the thought life becomes very important. Let me give you a scriptural principle for controlling the thoughts. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. And this is a help to me, and I think it will be to you. Evil thoughts do come. You can't live in this world without evil thoughts coming. 
I think you'll agree with that. Sometimes something you see, something you have no control over, something somebody says, sometimes it seems like it must be the devil just brings out of the blue. You're not responsible for the temptation. That's not sin. Don't condemn yourself. Don't let the devil beat you over the head because a sinful thought comes to you. You'll try that trick too. That's normal. But what you do with it, and here's what you should do with it, 2 Corinthians 10 and 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Here comes an evil thought. What should you do? Start praying. Conquer that thought in Jesus' name. Bend it to make it obedient to Christ. Now, if the Bible tells us to do that, that means we can do it. We can do it. You don't have to let the devil win the battle of the mind. You can fight back in your mind. Evil thoughts come to you. Start praying in Jesus' name. Start singing a scriptural course. Put a tape of a scriptural song. You know, the devil has powerful means of driving things in your mind, evil songs, things you pick up you don't even know where. Fight back with powerful things. Philippians 4 tells us to think on good things, and it lists. You know, I think um, the majority of the battle of the mind is won by prevention. Now, I want you to think about this. You ever had a song just go over and over and over in your mind, it seemed like you couldn't get it out, no matter how hard you tried? Now, if you listen to worldly songs with evil lyrics, then see the power that it, that it has over your mind. You can't even control it almost. It's subconscious. But on the other hand, think of the blessing it could be if you're filling your mind with godly songs, worshipful songs. Sometimes when you're not even thinking about it, song comes to you. You ever had that experience and you just felt this presence of God right there? You could just stop and worship right there in the middle of, of doing whatever you're doing. So... If you fill your mind with things, you're fighting yourself. You know, if you fill your mind with all this stuff of TV and all the worldly things on radio and all that, and then you try to fight against temptation, you're really hurting yourself. The best way to do it is to think on good things. There, there are some magazines and books the same way. You read all this, uh, these scandal magazines, and all this is filled with rumors and trash and all kinds of junk. Well, then you try to be holy in your thoughts. It's hard. When you're feeding yourself slop, you know, it's hard to, to be clean about it at the same time. So I think a lot of our thought life can be solved in advance. Next thing that I would like to mention is your body, the physical body. Let's look at Second Corinthians, or no, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. 1 Corinthians 3, 17 says this. Well, well, we'll start with verse 16, actually. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now, to 1 Corinthians 6 and 12. All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He's talking about food there. He's saying, everything's okay, but I'm not going to let myself get into anything that will control me. Then verse 19 of chapter 6. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? For you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
Now, that tells me wholeness involves my physical body. God has chosen to dwell. It's not really in this church house, really. This is not really the true temple of God. It's only the temple of God because we're here. I mean, if we were meeting in, in the gym, that would be the temple of God. If somebody had a bingo game in here, that wouldn't be the temple of God. See what I mean? The temple of God is not these bricks. You are the temple of God. Your body is the temple of God. That is where God has chosen to dwell. And just like the Israelites of the Old Testament held that tabernacle sanctuary to be sacred, the holiest of holies. So we should hold our bodies to be sacred. Salvation is not just for the spirit. It's for the body too. Jesus Christ died. By his stripes we're healed. He died to purchase salvation for the physical body. One of these days we're going to have a glory cigarettes or tobacco in any form. Again, because it is addictive and also because it's physically defiling. It physically makes your body dirty and tears it down. Now, you know what I think is amazing? You can go to the Surgeon General of the U.S. now and he'll give you all the statistics about the dangerous tobacco. But years before the scientists knew that, God's people were warned in the spirit not to have anything to do with tobacco. Isn't that something? The spirit of God, because this is violating the scripture principle. See, see how the spirit illuminates the word? That also lets me know if the preacher preaches something and I, I don't see it. I better be very careful before I just shrug it aside and say, oh, well, that didn't make a difference. I better make sure I'm getting in touch with the spirit because... You can't see this just by carnal reasoning. There's some things that somebody may preach against and say, this contradicts the Bible. And you say, well, I don't see how it does. You better think long and hard and pray long and hard. Because the Spirit knows more than the mind of man knows, more than the scientists know, more than the doctors know. And I'm so glad the Spirit of God warned us of the evils of tobacco before the medical profession did. Because by the time the medical profession got around to it, God's people had already erected a standard. The church was, had already been cleansed of that. The church had already taken a stand against that. Same way with TV. Now all the psychologists are jumping on the bandwagon. All the conservative Christian leaders are jumping on the bandwagon. But for the most of the church world, it's too late. They all have TV. But I'm so glad that God prompted our spiritual leaders to see the evils right at the very beginning when it didn't seem so bad. It certainly wasn't as bad as it is now. But yet they saw in the spirit how it was leading to evil. And now we're protected and we're safe from that. Amen. Let me give you a few uh, statistics. Did you know that in the United States of America, 350,000 deaths per year are attributed to tobacco? 350,000. Did you know 25,000 deaths per year are attributed to drunk driving? And that's not talking about all the other dangers of alcohol, the accidents, the crime, um, the uh, cirrhosis of the liver, and all the other things associated with alcohol, but just drunk driving kills 25,000 people a year. Now, you want me to show you the hypocrisy of this world? Vietnam War, you remember all the uproar over that. And I'm not here to debate the right or wrong of that. But guess how many U.S. boys were killed in the whole 10, 12, 15 years of the Vietnam War? About 50,000. It's a lot. But just think of the social revolution upheaval that caused our country because 50,000 men were killed. But every year, drunk driving kills 25,000. Every year, tobacco kills 350,000. You see why Christians have opposed these practices? They're physically defiling. They're destructive. Somebody says, well, I don't ever get drunk. I just drink a little bit. Or I won't get hooked on nicotine. I'll just smoke a little bit. 
But did you know even a little bit destroys the cells of the brain, destroys uh, various organs of your body? Even a little bit of alcohol impairs your reflexes. That's why they tell you the most dangerous thing in driving uh, is not people that just get so totally drunk, but it's people that have had a little bit to drink and they think they're okay. And they don't realize that their reflexes have been impaired. And so they, they just go driving as always and they get into a wreck. Now, that same thing is true spiritually. You drink a little bit of alcohol. You know what it does? It not only dulls your reflexes, it dulls your spiritual reflexes. It dulls the sensitivity to the spirit. It kind of dulls the conscience. It reduces inhibitions. You know, why, why do people laugh or cry more easily or get in a rage more easily or show forth lustful and lewd behavior more easily when they have a little alcohol? I'm not talking about when they're really drunk. I'm talking about when they drink a little bit. Why, why do the people of the world use alcohol in their parties to loosen things up? Because it lowers the inhibitions. But for a Christian who's controlled by conscience, controlled by the Holy Spirit, to lower your control to lower your self-control, to lower your spiritual control. That's not an advantage. That's a detriment. That's an open door to sin. That's why we guard our bodies as sacred. You know, that should extend. We need to be moderate in our eating habits. We need to be moderate in the care of our body. And to be consistent, we need to take care of our bodies. Give it proper food, proper rest, proper exercise. Try to be a good steward of the body that God has given us. Let me go to another area of holiness. The tongue. The tongue. This is very much involved in holiness. Let me read you James 1.26. If it wasn't in the Bible, I would be afraid to say this. But here it is in James 1.26. Shocking. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. If you can control every area of Christian life and you can't control your tongue, your whole religion is worthless. James chapter 3 and verse 8. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. The tongue is the unruly member, the member you can't control. I think maybe that's why speaking in tongues is the evidence of the Holy Ghost. You know why? The last thing to submit is the tongue and of course the brain that tells the tongue what to say I think speaking in tongues is God's way of saying I finally got all of them I finally filled them to the brim finally got complete control but you know what the sad thing is after somebody receives the Holy Ghost sometimes they'll yield that tongue in worship speaking in tongues the next day they'll go right back to using their tongue for sinful ways and James said how can, can the same fountain produce good water sweet water and bitter that can't be can the same tree produce good fruit and bad fruit and brambles and thistles can't be we've got to learn to control the tongue how can we sin with the tongue let me give you a few areas here lies you know our society does not value honesty like it used to but we should still be a person that keeps our word our word should be trusted when we say something People should be able to count on that, that it happened just like we said. That they can depend on our word, that we will keep our word, the Lord willing, to the best of our ability. We'll stick by our word. As Psalm 15 says, Blessed is the man that keeps his vows even to his own hurt. Even when it hurts you to keep your word, you keep it your word. Even when it causes you to get in trouble because you tell the truth, 
still, when you're forced between a lie and a truth, you always tell the truth. Our young people sometimes don't value honesty. We've got to claim honesty at all costs. Another way we can sin with the tongue is tail-bearing, backbiting, gossip. That is, you know what that means? That means telling things of an intimate or scandalous nature about somebody that could harm them. If you spread a lie about someone, of course that's sinful. But even spreading rumors about somebody that's of a very personal nature that could damage their reputation, that could hurt them, do you know that is sinful? That's the sin of tail-bearing. We're all against gossip. We're all against tail-bearing. Everybody says amen against that. But we, we don't recognize it when we do it ourselves. That's the deadly part of that sin. We never know. We never seem to realize that we're the ones doing it. You know, somebody says, I'm just telling you this so you can pray for this person. But here's a good test. Does the person you're telling need to know? Let's, somebody says, it's not gossip, it's the truth. But again, the test, does that person need to know? What is your motive for telling that? Is it going to hurt this person? Even the truth, even telling the truth can be the wrong thing in some situations. I mean, what I'm saying by there is sometimes you don't need to disclose anything at all. Let me give you an example. Let's say somebody has committed a sin that you know about and they repent and make it right with God. Is it to their benefit to go tell them the whole church about what they did? That could be the wrong thing to do. You know somebody that's in sin? I think it's your duty not to cover it up but to pray for them, uh, to go to someone in leadership or someone that has the authority to help them, their pastor, their teacher, their parent, that maybe has the God-given responsibility to work with them. You must do that. But to go spreading it all over everywhere, that can be wrong. We've got to be so careful. I think perhaps more new converts have been disillusioned by this kind of sin of the tongue than any one thing. They see brother, brothers and sisters in Christ attacking each other, tearing each other down, tearing the pastor down by the sins of the tongue. Sowing discord, that means causing trouble, disturbance in the church. You have a right to your own opinion, but you don't have a right to, to uh, murmur and complain. You're not going to always agree with what the pastor does or the Sunday school teacher does. You have a right to your own opinion. There is even a time and a place for constructive criticism or suggestions. But there's never time to be critical in spirit. There's never time to murmur, to complain, to go around to people and, and cause trouble, to stir up factions, to try to build opposition, to try to tear things apart. If you really are concerned about something, tell God about it. He's the one that can do the most. If you really got to tell somebody, the best person to tell is God. And when you're really praying for somebody sincerely, it's hard to be bitter and fighting at the same time when you're asking God to bless them and work it out. Some other sins of the tongue, taking the name of the Lord in vain. Do we casually use God's name? We say Lord, God, Christ. What do our children think when we, we preach that sacred name? Sins are remitted in that name. We're baptized in that name. We're healed in that name. We call that name in prayer and then say, use the name of God in, in joking or light vain, careless, useless manner. We desecrate his sacred name. Swearing by oath. The Bible says don't swear. You know why the Bible says don't swear? Because the thing you would swear by, you have no control. You cannot say, I swear I will do this. You could say, the Lord is willing, I'm going to do this. You don't have the power to enforce. Only God can swear. He can swear by himself because he has the power to make what he says come to pass. He has the power to make what he says true, but you don't. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. We don't have two standards of truth. 
You know, the world, they have two standards of truth. You know, they really want to say that something's really true. You know what they say? I swear. You know what that means? Ordinarily, you can't trust me, but this time I really am telling the truth. Should Christians have that? There's no need for me to say, Brother Dubas, this time I swear. Every time I tell him something, you should be able to count on it. Just say your yes, be yes, and your no, be no. And be honest at all times. If you're always honest, you can never be tripped up by your story. It's just there. You just tell the truth. Amen. Cursing, reviling, indecent language. We've got to be careful in this day when we're infiltrated from the news media all the way through foul language, suggestive jokes, uh, things that were, ne were never spoken in mixed company. And I know that we must take a strong and positive stand against sin. I know we must educate our young people. But at the same time, there's no use to speak of these personal, intimate things in conversation and joking and casual. We must keep a clear separation there, clear sense of holiness in our speech. Amen. We could talk all night about the tongue. Isn't that something we all need help in the tongue? Amen. Once you say something, you can't roll it up and take it back. You've got to live with it. Amen. Lord, help us to get control of that tongue. Amen. And then there is one more area I would like to share with you tonight, and that is the eye. The eye. Let's read Psalm 101. Psalm 101, verse 2 and verse 3. Psalm 101, verse 2. I ignored verse 2 for a long time, but then I realized how significant it was for the next verse. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. This applies even in your house. Now, verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. Part of that being upright, part of that being perfect, especially in your own house, is I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. It's one thing to see something out in the world. It's another thing to bring it in your home and sit down there and endorse it and let it entertain you and to entertain it. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. That means I will not deliberately indulge in watching evil. That's how David sinned. You know, he knew about that. How did he commit adultery and murder? Because he saw Bathsheba taking a bath, and he refused to turn away from that. He refused to get control of that. He refused to leave that aside, but he allowed himself to continue watching until that developed in lust, in lust to adultery and adultery into murder. Psalm 119 and verse 37, a similar statement. Psalm 119 and 37 tells us, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. Vanity means something that's vain, something that's useless, something that's worthless. He says, I'm not going to look at the things which are vain, useless, worthless, no value. Now, in our day, there are many things that are evil to behold. And you know, there's something especially dangerous about the eyes. Why is that so? The eye is the gate to the soul, the gate to the mind. You know, in Matthew 6, Jesus said the eye is the light of the body. If your, if your eye is dark, 
how great is the darkness of your body? You know what I think he was saying? It's, it's, a, it's a common a psychological truth. Your eye is the primary gate to your mind. Most of what you think about is stimulated by what you have seen. Think about that. When you, the things you think about, things you talk about to other people, it's mostly somebody you've seen, something you've read. Your eye determines what you think about, and what you think about determines what you are. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I, I'm not saying you are what you think you are. I'm saying you are what you think. That's the real you. The real you is not the face and the hair. The real you is your thought, your thought life. That's the real you. And your eye is what brings you most of your thoughts. Think how powerful the, the eye is. If I were to tell you about a horrible accident where the blood gushed and the heads were decapitated and you could shudder and thought about that or if you heard the crash of the cars you could shudder at the horror of it but what if you see it for yourself it's all the difference in the world isn't it that's the power of the eye that's why people say seeing is believing and when you see it with your eyes you see a magic trick and you know it can't be but your eyes tell you it is it's powerful your eyes tell you you believe what your eyes tell you your mind says it couldn't be but your eyes say it happened now, that's the power there. That's why one of the three areas of worldliness is called the lust of the eyes. Singled out the eyes. You know, I mean, it's humorous, but it doesn't say the lust of the nose. The lust of the ears. There's something different altogether about seeing it. That's why we must guard our eyes. And there are other scriptures, I didn't read nearly all of them, that talk about turning our eyes away from evil, not beholding evil things. Now, again, we can't help what we see in the world. Immodesty of dress and all kinds of things are all around us. There's no way we can close our eyes to the things of the world. But it's the same thing with a temptation. We cannot stop an evil thought coming to us, but we can handle it after that. We cannot stop an evil view totally from surrounding us in the world, but we can determine how we handle that, especially in the sanctity of our own home. There is the test. What am I talking about? Books? Magazines? We've got to be careful of that. In Acts 18, they burned occult books. If you, if you follow the horoscopes every day, you use signs of the zodiac, which is just astrology, it's just pagan worship. If you read these scandal magazines all the time, if you look at pornographic magazines, if you read books that describe explicit immoral scenes, uh, you know, and it's one thing just to to read a book that may have some reference to something that we wouldn't think is Christian, but it's another thing to saturate your mind with very detailed scenes. The whole book is filled with this. The whole book is filled with foul language. It has an effect on your mind. We shouldn't be letting our eyes get involved in this. TV. The box isn't sinful. The technology isn't sinful. But in our day, what choice do you really have? You have a choice between one worldly channel or another. That's why I don't have a TV, and I don't think that a Christian should have a TV. A spiritual Christian living for God really has no use for a TV. Somebody says, well, I'll just watch the good things. The good things, if there are, the innocent things are so few, you know, 10% of your time or less, that you should be willing to give that up for the sake of obedience to the will of God and to the church and to helping, not putting a stumbling block in front of your own children and so on. I mean, if you really only watch the good things like you say, you watch it so little that just to get rid of it won't make any difference to your lifestyle at all. 
You know what I tell people if you have a TV? I'm not saying get rid of it. I'm saying this. For six months, do this one thing. Spend the same amount of time watching as you watching TV. Spend that same amount of time in prayer. In the six months, the question will be resolved. Because you will not have time to do both. No way. And if you really do spend that time in prayer, you know what? Your mind is going to be on the things of God, and it's going to be strangely repulsive. All that show, all that fake, all that glitter, all that lewd, suggestive talking, all those um, immoral scenes and things, it's just going to grate on you. And sure, that TV or those movies is attractive, but what is it attractive to? Sure, if I had a TV, I'd watch it. That's why I don't have one. It is attractive, but what does it attract? What does it feed? What does it build up? The lust of the flesh. And the Bible says, give no opportunities to the flesh. Do not give occasion to the flesh. Don't give the flesh an inch, it'll take a mile. I, I know I've got a sinful nature. I know I've got desires that would like those things. But I don't want to feed those. I want to kill those. I want to crucify those. And so I don't, I don't want to feed the flesh. I want to feed the spirit. And if you'll, if you'll pray as much as you watch TV, then you would see that one or the other has got to go. You don't have time for both, and you won't have a desire for both. Now, let me just show you. Let me give you some statistics. And, of course, I don't need to go in detail, but just to tell you that the things that are on TV, mostly what TV is built around is sin, adultery, fornication, uh, lying, cheating, stealing, violence, murder, uh, foul language. I mean, you name it. And now you've you got such things as cable TV. You've got these video cassettes. You've got movies that go into pure, outright pornography. Uh, and even on regular TV channels, I, I keep up with Time Magazine and newspapers and so on. But did you know in the last few years, the first sympathetic portrayal of the homosexual lifestyle has appeared not only in movies, but on regular television. The first sympathetic portrayal of incest, of rapists, the first sympathetic portrayal of prostitution, of transvestitism, wearing clothes of the opposite sex. All of that is now on regular TV programming. Think about little kids that are raised in that. They think that's what the world is really supposed to be like. When you watch TV, you think, well, everybody else is like that. You know, that, that's, what, that's the influence of TV. Everybody else does it. Everybody else has this. Everybody else is like this. And what originally you would think of as wrong, your mind becomes conditioned. You're not going to go out the first time and sin because you saw it on TV. You're going to say, oh, that's sinful. I'm just watching it. I'm not partaking of it. But eventually, over the long run, slowly your brain was Suddenly, the defenses of the mind are lowered. In a moment of weakness, you have no defenses that you thought you have, and Satan can bring that thing to you, bring that thought to you, and you fall into sin. But even before that point, if you constantly watch and indulge in these sinful things, isn't there something wrong there? Romans 1.32 tells us this. You know, Romans 1 lists all these sins of the, the Gentiles, all the sins of the reprobate mind. And then it closes in verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, now notice, these people know that what they're doing is worthy of death. They know it's against the will of God. They know it brings judgment. But not only do they do it, what else? But have pleasure in them that do them. If you're always watching things that glorify sin, you're taking pleasure in the actor sinning for you. And indirectly, you're subsidizing those programs because 
the advertisers wouldn't be paying if it wasn't people like you watching the program. The condemnation not only comes to the people that do them, but the people that enjoy other people that do them. The people that are paying for other people to do them. Now you say, oh, well, uh, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't affect me. I have more spiritual control than that. Just watching for a few minutes, a few sins that come across the screen every hour, that's not going to bother me. Did you know that the corporations of America are betting billions of dollars that you're wrong? They pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for just a 60-second spot. Now, they know that you just watch that one thing, you're probably not going to go out and buy what they've got. But they're counting that slowly in your mind can be built up a liking for their products, even unconsciously, so that the next time you go in the store, you just automatically pick up something that's been planted in your mind. You may not even realize the conscious process. Now, if those advertisers are willing to pay for a few seconds out of the hour, they're paying millions as a business decision. Not that they're not supporting TV for cultural reasons, for because uh, they think it's a good thing for America. They're doing it for sheer profit incentive. They think it works. Now, if they're betting millions of dollars that this works, how much more is the, the rest of the program affecting your mind? The devil knows that. Now, I want to give you some statistics here just to show you if you think I'm overreacting. Did you know the average home in America has a TV on seven hours per day? Did you know the average person in America watches TV, at least the, the lowest group that watches it was teenagers because they're so active in other things, but the average teenager watches it 23 hours a week. The average housewife doesn't have a job, it stays home. The average housewife watches TV 36 and a half hours per week. It's almost a full-time job. You don't think that has an effect on people? When a child turns 18, he's seen... 11, he's had 11,000 hours in the classroom. He's had 22 hours in front of the TV. He's seen 18,000 murders on TV. He's seen 350,000 commercials on TV. You don't think that affects him? And I'd hate to say how much time he spends in church compared to that. Which is going to have the most powerful influence? After the parents, psychologists tell you that TV is the number one influence on young children after the parents. TV is the babysitter in many homes. You don't think that has an effect? Did you know if you follow that out and a person lives to age 70, that he has spent an average of five to eight years of his life watching TV? That's 10% paying tithes to TV on his life. You don't think that has an impact? And then add this. The people that dominate TV programs, who decides what goes on TV? Yes, less than 200 people in America, most of them in New York or Hollywood, determine what goes on all TV. Less than 200. And they've done surveys of these 200. They're not religious. The overwhelming majority are not religious. They're immoral. They believe abortion is okay, homosexuality is okay, extramarital affairs or what the Bible would call adultery is okay. They believe all these things are okay. And they're what's telling what... 225 million people think about all day. You don't think that's having an effect on America? I mean, we talk about humanism in the schools, you know, all these teachers brainwashing our kids. But TV has been doing it for years much more effectively. A much select group of highly immoral people dominating our thought life. Did you know that modern psychologists are warning, even non-Christians? I have a book in my possession, it was a book of the lunch club, 
It's by a former TV advertising executive, not a Christian of any kind, as far as I know. And his, the title of his book is Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. He says television only deteriorates our society. Uh, you ever heard of Bill Gothard? He's an independent Baptist minister that does seminars all across the nation. I was in one of his seminars. He said TV is an idol. It's a violation of the, of the Ten Commandments. He says, if you've got to have a TV, put it in the most inconvenient place in your home, put it in the attic. I heard him. That's a Baptist. You read, have you ever read Set the Trumpet to Thy Mouth by David Wilkerson, Assembly of God minister, who started, uh, he's, he, was in, uh, he did the cross and the switch played, uh, that book, and he was instrumental in Teen Challenge, converting the youth gangs. He, first of all, he got rid of TV because uh, he was convicted because it, he wasn't praying, and so he spent two hours a day in prayer that he used to spend watching TV. But in this latest book, he says TV is an abomination. He gives 31 scriptural reasons why the overcoming Christian should get rid of the abomination of television in his home. Isn't that something? Now, he's fighting a losing battle because all of his people already have it. But we can take a stand now and keep our home secure. Amen. Uh, Don Wildman, Methodist. He's got a National Federation of Decency trying to clean up TV. Well, while he's trying to clean it up, I hope he's successful. But I'm not going to keep watching it until he is. If he ever is successful, that's a different story. But in the meantime, and I, personally, I don't think it'll ever be successful because as long as it's in the hand of unregenerate people, it's going to be used for evil. But in the meantime, the only solution is not watch it. Now, what am I saying? And I'll bring this to a close. When the Baptists and the Assemblies of God and the Methodists and the non-Christian psychologists and, and uh, advertising officials are telling us of the danger of TV, the true church of God ought to realize, hey, we're right. We have got to keep our thoughts pure. We have got to keep our eyes pure. We have got to keep our hearts pure. Amen. And that's why I don't believe in TV. That's why I don't believe in movies. That's why I don't believe in using any means, whatever the technology, you know, if you use video or whatever, to watch those things that we oppose at the movie theater to be consistent, you would oppose it no matter what form or fashion that it might come. Not saying that technology is evil. I'm saying the way the world has programmed it and used it, it's evil. Amen. If you let the world tell you what to watch in those areas, you'll violate holiness principles. Holiness see involves all areas of our life, all areas of our body, all areas of our mind. Amen. We're going to be talking about some more of these uh, next Wednesday night. But... If I were just to, to wrap this up tonight, and again, let me stress, holiness is not a matter of just living by rules. I don't, I don't, the reason why I don't have a TV is not because the UPC says I can't have a TV. You know, you, somebody says, well, I'll just put the TV in the garage, you know, so then I don't have it in my house or whatever. Or I'll just go every night and watch it in somebody else's house. That's, that's playing with rules. That's legalism. That's not holiness. But the reason why I don't have a TV is because I love God. And so my love for God overrides that love for the world. And even though I recognize there is a tendency in me that could love that, I don't want to give play to that tendency. I want to keep my life pure. I don't have to struggle in my mind every day over sinful thoughts. I want to get rid of a bunch of them before they ever come. I don't want to have to struggle every day trying to erase sinful things. I'd like to get rid of them before they ever come to me. Win some battles before we ever get to them. You know, some trials you can avoid, you know. You don't have to hit your head on every door 
before you learn to jump. Some, you can look in advance and say, hey, other people have hit their head. I think I'll duck before I hit it. You can avoid some trials. I know some trials come from the devil. I know God allows trials to develop us. But there are a whole lot of trials that we, can, we cause ourselves. And if we'll just live the life of wholeness, that's not a life that's harmful to us. That's a life that will bless us. Let us stand. Amen. I believe in scriptural holiness. I want the Spirit of God to control my mind. I don't want alcohol to control me. I don't want to be a slave of tobacco. I don't want to let drugs control me. I don't want to be filled with a lying spirit. I don't want to be filled with a critical spirit. I don't want to be uh, so uh, involved that I always want to gossip and tell sensational evil things about people to get my kick in life. Isn't that sad that some people, their biggest joy in life is telling dirty things on other people? To unearthing hidden truths, maybe, maybe even things that people have done in the past and bringing that up and dredging it out, and that's the biggest joy some people get. Oh, I don't want to get my kicks out of watching somebody going through uh, the motions of sins on the screen. I've got a whole lot more joy in that, and that is in the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah, the greatest joy on earth is to have the Holy Spirit, not a lustful spirit, but the Holy Spirit to speak in other tongues, to dance in the Spirit, to sing the songs of Zion, to let a spirit of weeping flood your soul while you're washing the dishes, to think of the love of God while you're driving down the street, to let the Spirit of God flood your soul. And you know how it comes? Holy Spirit. And we keep that Holy Spirit by walking after the Spirit and living a holy life. Let's thank the Lord once again for holiness. Let's thank Him for holiness. It's a beauty. It's a privilege. It's a joy. Let's thank Him for holiness.